Spotlights. You are listening to Marvel's pull list for new comics on sale February 24th, 2021. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. Yes, Tucker. It is a snowy day here in the Bronx, where I live. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I watched that Bee Gees documentary. It was phenomenal. So I've been getting my disco on over here. There's some some bangers by the Bee Gees, I'll tell you that much. But we're not here to just talk about the Bee Gees. We are here to talk about all the new comics out this week. We're going to give our picks of the week, as well as give out some pulleys, which are our awards that we give arbitrarily to random things that come in our heads as we read through these books. Then we're going to have a reading club where we talk about a classic or maybe modern classic book with a comic creator. This week we have Danny Lore on, and they are talking about the most recent Morbius series. If Vita Ayala is listening at this point, surprise! Hi, Vita. Hi, Vita. Danny picked this, and it's funny, and we're <laughs> going to get into that a little bit later. I do want to say, um, before we start rolling, I know a lot of people have heard me talk about the adoption and stuff with Catherine Grace after the last time we recorded. I had the adoption hearing, the finalization, it is official legally in the eyes of this country and this state. I am the parent guardian for my daughter. Congratulations. Thank you. That's amazing. It's a wild ride. So it's pretty cool. If anybody hasn't seen, I'm able to now legally post pictures of her beautiful face and they will melt you. Melt the snow around you because <laughs> she's so dang cute. All right, let's dive into the books now. We've got our picks up top. I'm going to kick things off with one of our King and Black tie-in issues. It is Black Cat number three. It is written by Jed McKay, art by Sia Villa, colors by Brian Reber, and letters by Ferran Delgado. This is a uh, King and Black tie-in. And actually, the storyline is called Queen in Black because amidst all the chaos that's going on with Null and New York City, Black Cat, Felicia Hardy, she's gotten herself into a dilly of a pickle. She's been tasked with kind of helping free Doctor Strange from Null's evil symbiote clutches. And to do that, she's gotten an artifact, a magical weapon, an Asgardian, basically a piece of Yggdrasil, the world tree, that has imbued her with incredible powers, which probably will overwhelm her. We get to see on one side Black Cat just destroying Null's forces, and on the other side, it, like an internal dialogue she's having with a manifestation of the weapon that has sort of presented itself as someone she knows. I won't dive in too much, but you get some really great stuff. Big action, big mental, emotional beats in this issue. It's terrific. Highly, highly recommend it. My pick this week goes to Marvel's Voices Legacy number one, a continuation of what has been a really fun, really cool journey to see Marvel's Voices go from an idea to a great podcast now making its way into the comics themselves. It's so cool. This is a collection of a bunch of great stories. Let me run through all of them real quick, then I'll highlight a couple in particular. We have Words Do Matter. That's by John Ridley with art by Olivier Coipel and coached by Laura Martin. Then we have Decompression by Mohali Mashigo and Chris Allen with Rochelle Rosenberg. Good Luck Girl. That's by... Tochi Onyabuchi with Ken Lashley and Juan Fernandez. Aluta Continua by Nettie Okorafor with Criss Cross and Rochelle Rosenberg. And then Nighttime Bodega Run. That's by our guest this week, Danny Lore and Valentin Delandro with 
Dan Brown. Man, oh man, this words do matter story. It's a Miles Morales story. It kicks off the issue. It's John Ridley's words with the incredible Olivia Coipel's art, Laura Martin on colors. I mean, look, we have Olivia, we have Laura bringing you the artwork. You know that that's top of the line. John Ridley, though, still, of course, a relatively new entity to the world of comics. I just get the sense that John Ridley, something about him is purpose-built to write comic books. Because not only does he tell this story with very few words, but it's an unusual story. It kind of straddles the line a little bit between... I want to say second and third person in a way. Second person with regard to the reader, third person with regard to Miles Morales. Man, you just got to read it. It's three pages. It's incredible. The other one that really stuck out to me in this issue is Good Luck Girl by Tochi, Ken, and Juan. This is a little bit more of a traditional story being told. I think it just gets to the heart of Domino so wonderfully and is able to tell a lot of story in very few pages. It's really impressive. And overall, those two stories, I think, are emblematic of the work being done in this issue at large. It is well worth your hard-earned cash, a lot of bang for your buck in this issue. And look... It's edited by Sarah Brunstad and Will Moss, two of the best in the biz. You know that anything those two are working on, especially a hugely collaborative effort like this, is going to come off beautifully. And I think it really does. Yeah. Uh, All right. Last of our three picks for the week is Black Panther number 23. This is Wakanda Unbound part five. It is written by Ta-Nehisi Coates with art by Daniel Cunha and Ryan Bodenheim with colors by Acuna and Chris O'Halloran, letters by VCs Joe Sabino. There's some moments in here where the word that keeps popping in my mind is scale. The scale of the story, the scale of everything that ta has been working on for these like five years. And in the bunch of pages here, especially in those Acuna segments, the scale of Wakanda, the scale of Wakanda's history and backstory. And it's beautiful and cool. In the Bodenheim pages as well, there's like the sense of what has come before what is about to happen. There's just a feeling of enormity throughout this entire book. You've got T'Challa marshalling Wakandan forces, as well as the forces of his allies. He really calls upon a whole bunch of people, which part of that to me is Ta-Nehisi being like, I want this character in here. I want this character in here. I want this to be a moment. They're getting ready for this big battle against the resurrected Killmonger, who's got a twisted, weird symbiote creature and is like also in Jataka. On top of all the cool stuff that happens in here, we've got one of our Marvel Def Jam collaboration stories. And this one is by St. Bodhi. She gets to write a storm story in here. And she is joined by Danny Lore, Aletha E. Martinez, Rochelle Rosenberg, and VCs Joe Sabino to tell this story about Storm and a young mutant. And it's beautiful. It's a really cool story. Yeah. That's what we have for our picks this week. Now we're jumping right into all the new comics that are coming to your shop on the 24th. First up is Amazing Spider-Man number 60. There are so many twists in here. I hesitate to even get into it at all. I will say the art is by Mark Bagley, one of the true goats. And a huge swath of this issue is close-ups on Peter Parker, and it's just him reacting. It's just him cast in this bright light, and the work that 
I think if you are Spider-Man editor Nick Lowe, you just say, wow, this is a big challenging sequence. I think for any artist, who do we give it to? Of course, we got to give it to the master. We got to give it to Bagley. This issue gets my hand of the week. That's my pulley for it because we jump from one scene to another. I won't detail what happens in those scenes, but as we do, the first panel we see is just Spidey's hand thwipping and you see Mark Bagley take the reins on Spidey's features like that. And you're just like, ah, I'm home. It's so good. Yeah. All right. We've got Captain Marvel number 26 this week, which wraps up the really cool story where Carol has gone to this possible future where she's helped try to save the day, introduced a whole bunch of new characters. I'm going to give this a pulley for Kelly Thompson leg sweep of the week because Kelly has a way of giving you these big highs and then sweeping the leg out right from under you by just crushing your heart. But this has been a tremendous, tremendous run where we've seen new characters. And actually, with Carol coming back to the Marvel Universe of the present, some things are also coming back with her. Yeah. Next up, we have Captain Marvel, Marvel's Snapshots, number one. One of my favorite things in the Marvel Universe, truly, is the relationship between Carol Danvers and Kamala Khan. This issue is really cool because we get to analyze that from a third-party perspective as much as really humanly possible because we're seeing this from a new character's perspective. We're getting this story. We're getting this character's story. We're getting to see you know, this kind of big superhero interaction. And a big part of that is a conversation with Kamala and then a conversation with Carol. Ultimately, it's just really cool to see Mark Wade approach a character like Captain Marvel, like Carol Danvers, who has so much historical weight behind her. So it is really fun to rake new ground in this way or really look at something in a modern light. And that's kind of the pulley angle that I have on this one. It's a fresh story. It's a contemporary story. And I admire that breaking new ground in here. It's really cool. Yeah. Let's uh, get back into our King in Black section. We have a couple more tie-ins to talk about this week. Kicking things off with King in Black Namor number four. I'm going to give my pulley for Vomit of the Week because there is an undersea creature that vomits here and it's weird and disgusting and horrifying, also kind of funny, but it's not a funny book. It is a very serious book with terrifying creatures and Namor struggling in both the past and the present with just Atlantis and their own homegrown problems. That said, fish vomiting is is always going to get a pull for me. Now, more in the realm of King in Black, we have King in Black, Return of the Valkyries, number three. It's cool to see this have the weight of what almost feels like a main series issue in terms of how Null is involved, in terms of how big the action is. It's something that I automatically think like, oh, of course, you know, it's Jason Aaron among this creative team. Of course, they're going to allow him to play right in the middle of the sandbox here. But there is a bunch of other circumstantial and supporting cast stuff going on in here that I think is really, really interesting. And simultaneous to all of that, there's some great quiet moments, I think, of stuff with Danny Moonstar, certainly stuff with Jane. It's really, really cool, not least because we have Mr. Horse involved. All right, let's keep it going. One more King of Black tie-in this week. We've got Symbiote Spider-Man King of Black number four. I'm going to give this a pulley for The Kitchen Sink because this book 
has everything, including, well, I guess it doesn't have the kitchen sink. I'm giving it a pulley for the kitchen sink. So now it has everything, including the kitchen sink. You've got Uatu, the Watcher. You've got Cosmo, the Space Dog. You've got, of course, Symbiote Spider-Man. You've got Ulik, the Troll. Ulik's sister is in this. Monica Rambeau is in this. Uh, you've got Rocket. You've got Kang. You've got so much going on here. It's funny. It's action-packed. It is just Peter David, Peter Daviding it up as best as he can. It's a lot of fun. And speaking of Peter David, now we move into Maestro War and PAX number two. And yeah, it's one of those issues where you can just tell this is written by Peter David, not just in terms of the fact that it's Maestro, a character that Peter David knows better than anyone, but the other characters that he brings on board into this story. Uh, There's one in particular that I certainly know that Ryan is excited to see. But beyond that, We also get Victor Von Doom in here. It's a really interesting story that I think is emerging here because, I don't know, it feels like it has a little bit more maybe sci-fi influence than certain other stories, which is just cool. You know, like we get that in certain ways in certain books, but to see Peter David lean into that maybe even a little bit more than usual, and we know that he likes that kind of thing, is really fun. And it's it's a unique thing to read. It's cool. Let's talk about Magnificent Ms. Marvel number 18. This is actually the 75th issue of Ms. Marvel. This wraps up actually the run by Saladin Ahmed and Minkyo Young. So kudos to them for these 18 issues. Kudos to everybody for getting us 75 issues of Ms. Marvel. This is really like that balance of the superhero life balanced with the personal life and the doubts and the fears and the the tragedy and, and the humor of it all. It all like really, really well weaves together in this issue. It really is a big battle between Ms. Marvel and the alien costume that she got at the beginning of this run, Storm Ranger, the two of them going after it. You got that side and then all the stuff that is happening in Kamala's personal life. It's a great capper to this run. So definitely check it out. Yeah. Uh, Next up, we go over to the New Mutants with New Mutants number 16. As we get to know the way that Vita Ayala is going to write the New Mutants and what Vita is bringing to this series, there's some really, really cool, I feel like kind of horror influences, that kind of uncanny valley, no pun intended, something strange is happening. You're right alongside, attached to the hip to all of these characters, figuring it out as they figure it out. It's a mix of that. It's a mix of fantasy. It's a mix of so many different things that I think just ends up being such a perfect mutant story. I also got to say, Rod Reese, his artwork is just incredible. I think this issue might get my pulley of the week for maybe close-up of the week because there's one close-up that we get of magic in here. It is so emotional and Rod does his colors as well. It's bathed in this very particular kind of pink coral light. It's beautiful. I also have to mention Christian Ward is on cover duty here. Just so good to see him doing work at the House of Ideas. I'll take any Christian Ward work, and I think in particular putting him on covers of New Mutants just feels right at home with the legacy of this series. It's great. Hell yeah. For our UK listeners, we've got the Union number three. This keeps us going, figuring out this team that does not want to be a team that will be a team, the Union. We get introduced to the Bulldog in here, the English member of the team who, he's like an English version of Puck without the gymnastics. He's like a smaller, stout dude. But this gets my pulley for Splash Page of the Week when Snakes is finally revealed. 
It is tremendous. There's a beautiful page. Andrea DeVito came in to do art here. Fantastic work. Tucker, we keep talking about Annihilation. Andrea DeVito worked on those Annihilation books back in the day. We're going to have to get Annihilation on the Reading Club sometime soon. Yeah, we got to. That's great. All right. From the UK, now over to the US with US Agent number three. It's written by Priest. And I think he has such a great command of John Walker and this uber-specific place that he holds in the Marvel Universe. And using that as ammunition, not just against those that John Walker might be going up against, but as fuel for the story itself is really, really cool. Uh, It adds up to a complex and very compelling story. Amidst all of that, this one may get my plea for tomato throw of the week. Classic (laughs) tomato throw. It feels like such a, a priest thing to write, too. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's keep going. We're going to talk about Warhammer 40,000, Marnius Calgar number five. This gets my pulley for most Mortal Kombat-y book of the week because there are, like, straight-up fatality-type moves in here. Uh, this is all about Marnius Calgar, the, uh, one of the key characters in the Warhammer 40,000 stories. Kieran Gillen and Jason Burroughs have been doing this story, and it's bloody and it's brutal. But there's some movements in here that are just, like... If you are a Warhammer fan, this has got to be your jam. (laughs) Now we have Wolverine number 10. It's a book, and you can tell, totally constructed to be illustrated by a master. Because the panel structure, the way that your eyes flow across the page, because both Ben and Adam Kubert are working on this together, it just comes together perfectly. And I think we're continuing to dive into some more and more Wolverine-specific drama. I just love a story that I think is whole cloth, a Wolverine story, whole cloth, diving into the consequences of choices and actions and the characters that surround Wolverine. And that's something that uh, I think we're digging deeper and deeper and deeper into here. And yeah, it's just one where you look at it and it doesn't look like any other book this week. So for that alone, that alone, just in terms of it being a pure exercise in comic book mastery, it's worth the price of admission. And then, of course, you have this incredible story to go along with. It's great. Now we got one more book left. It is X-Men number 18. This is an intense one. Uh, I'm going to be honest with you. If you have just joined in on all the X-Men books because of everything that's been going on with Dawn of X after House of X and Powers of Ten, and you're like, what the hell is the vault? Who are the children of the vault? I think it does a good job of sort of like entryway and you don't need to know much more. But I would suggest... Go read those original Children of the Vault stories on Marvel Unlimited. They're from the Volume 2 X-Men, which they first popped up around 188, but I think they go into even like 200. There's a big storyline with them by Mike Carey and Chris Pachalo and a whole bunch of other people. Really cool storyline. I like that Jonathan Hickman is like digging into this as part of his Krakoan lore. This is a big one for the children, for the X-Men, for Krakoa, for the future of mutant kind. It's awesome. It was nearly one of my picks of the week. The only reason I didn't pick it is because if you don't know a lot about the children, you may be a little confused. But if you're reading all the X-Men books, it's friggin' fantastic. It's gorgeous with Mahmoud Aswar art. It's big. It's got a great team of sync, Wolverine, aka X-23, aka Laura, and Darwin, the three of them going into the vault and like the way that Jonathan explains why it's just those three and how their powers work together. It's just like, 
It's beauty. I love this book. I love this issue a ton. Yeah. That's what we have for our new books this week, but coming new to you in the form of collections. We have a bunch of stuff. Immediately what pops out is Captain America Sam Wilson, the complete collection volume two, very relevant nowadays. And the other one that I want to say is Howard the Duck Masterworks volume one. Yeah, get that Howard. Over on Marvel Unlimited, tons of new books added to the service this week. We've got Ten of Swords stuff with Cable and Hellions. There's a great issue of Spider-Woman. So if you just heard our episode with Carla Pacheco last week. Spider-Woman number six is now on the service. Oh, the first issue of Symbiote Spider-Man, King in Black, is now in Marvel Unlimited. Wow. Some really good stuff. Go subscribe to Marvel Unlimited and enjoy all the comics. While you're there, you can, of course, read the Morbius the Living Vampire story that was written by Vita Ayala. We are going to talk about that with writer Danny Lore right now. Tucker, hold on to your butts because I don't know why I think you have two butts. Anyway, hold on to both of them because our guest this week is Danny Lord. Danny, second time on the show. Welcome back. Hey, guys. How you doing? Doing great. Doing great. Very excited to nerd out with you guys again. Yes. Yeah. So last time you were on, we talked about the Isaiah Bradley story, but today we have a different sort of reading club with you. And I think this one is really cool the way we got to it. So... We recently had Vida Ayala on the show to talk about Punisher Warzone. And you work frequently with Vida, and you were on the show previously with Vida. And I believe you also chose Punisher Warzone. <laughs> yeah. So what happened was that I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I was like, I was kind of thinking Punisher Warzone. And then it was like, well, Vida had already done that. And then two days later, I was like, Vida. Did I recommend that you do Warzone? Were we talking? And Vita was like, yeah. Ah. I just completely forgot that I had recommended one of my favorite comics to Vita to talk about. Because that's where my brain is. Just mm -hmm. total melted ice cream right now. But also hearing Vita talk about that book is a delight. So I can't believe that like I just completely blanked out on it. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> so with that being the situation with your initial choice, what have you brought to the table for us to talk about this episode? So considering that amusing little bit, I thought it would be fun to talk about a miniseries that Avita actually wrote. Specifically, we are going to talk about their run on uh, Morbius the Living Vampire with uh, pencils done by Marcelo Ferreira. Uh, and then I think it's inks are Roberto Poggi. Sorry, everything now is in text. So uh, my apologies if I mispronounce things because I don't hear voices that aren't me and my wife's anymore very often. You're doing great. It's all good. And the colors, which colors on this book are beautiful by Dono Sanchez Almara, letters by Clayton Cowles. I'm so glad you brought this one to the table. Um, I remember Tucker and I talking about this book and just delighting in it. And uh, I'm, I'm glad we get to revisit it. Uh, one of the things I do want to uh, head this off with, since, you know, Vita is my best buddy, I am going to be talking about this pretty much primarily as a fanboy and also someone who is very, can very easily academically nerd about things they love, that what I'm saying is not like the Vita gospel on anything, unless I mention that Vita has spoken about this publicly. Like, for example... Vita's a philosophy major, and I think that that had a big 
impact on this run. And I mean, it has an impact on their work in general, but in particular, as we get into it, and if you've ever read it, it's very obvious how much that informed the themes of this work. But like kind of aside from that, like, please don't ascribe anything I'm saying <laughs> to, to Vita's. It's all... Not death of the author. We'll say nap of the author because Vita <laughs> deserves to sleep. Um, also, as an aside, I have not informed them that we're doing this arc, and that's my favorite part. I love, I love it. <laughs> they find out when I'm done recording. Terrific. Yeah. <laughs> Terrific. I'm so, so excited to talk to you about this because the besties perspective is a very unique perspective, and it's one I'm very excited to hear about. So just to get started, what were your conversations with Vita like? when this project was coming about for them and when Vita was writing it and all of that stuff. Do you remember having any chats about uh, Morbius? For me, I spent a lot of time squeeing about this book. I think that this is probably top three of Vita projects for me, probably top two um, Marvel projects that they've done. One of the reasons I love it and like when I found out that they were doing it and I was done screeching at a very high <laughs> bat sonar level was that they have a deep love of the philosophy of science already. Like that is mm. something that they're very passionate about, about the ethics of it, about how we approach it. So that is something that I, I have heard them talk about for our entire friendship, like when people bring it up. And then also I think that they did an amazing kind of combination of the classic Marvel horror, right? Like that kind of, I think that on a structural scale, uh, like level, they did some really cool things that harken back to like the old 70s and 80s, like horror comics. The fact that they successfully did like classic horror tone with like Spidey not shutting up for half of this book mm. is also like, <laughs> like I was losing it. I believe that this was the first time that I ever read Vita touching anyone in the Spidey suit as well, which long before either of us were working for any companies, I was like, I want to see Vita, right? That snark. So that was really exciting for me. And also, I just think the art is so cool. The heart is so cool. And they bring in these concepts of like gentrification and colonization also both on a macro scale dealing with kind of like both the last time we saw Morbius and like the space between those storylines, but then also on, on a very personalized scale. Right. You know, and we'll get into this later, but like the conversation about virtue, the conversation about health as a virtue, which then becomes like this really important disability narrative that isn't shied away from. Right. That was a place that Morbius struggles to move past. Like that's one of his big hubris points. And so making the story about like Morbius thinking it's about what are the virtues when it's really like what is virtue <laughs> mm -hmm. was like such an interesting start. And like getting to hear Vita piecing that together and then seeing an issue and seeing how it played out was always super exciting to me. Also, um, if anyone has ever heard me talk on social media, you probably realize that I'm a big Marvel horror fan and like horror comics in general, you know. I tend to be the werewolf to Vita's vampire stuff, but this was such a cool project. From the second that I heard about it to its conception, I think it was just so much fun. 
I want to take a quick step back and talk a little bit about Morbius for any of our listeners who are not familiar with the character. So Morbius is a character who first appeared in the early 70s in Amazing Spider-Man, right around the time when Spidey had, it might have been when Spidey had his six arms. Wonderful, weird time for Spider-Man, as you talked about. Which is referenced in here, actually. Vita uses that as kind of their point of like empathetic connection in here, which I thought was really fun. Yes. Um, this is from the early 70s. So really Marvel getting into what you talked about, that that like cool horror character boom. You know, you, you'd get the weird characters were coming out. They were skirting the line with the Comics Code Authority stuff. They were working in magazine format and black and white formats and different formats to play around with with the different horror characters, Werewolf by Night and Frankenstein and many more. And so Morbius comes out and he's this tortured great, cool, Marvel kind of villain, kind of just misunderstood. Anti-hero. He feels like he becomes more of an anti-hero later on. Yeah, he's definitely a protagonist. Whether or not he's a good guy from the start is gently put debatable. And I think that that's also kind of important about so many of those Marvel horror books. We have other anti-heroes, right? We have Punisher and we have characters like that. But what we have in the Marvel horror books specifically is the monster as protagonist, which I think is in part what makes that kind of section of the world very different. They are victims sometimes of their own hubris, of family curses. There's the whole comparison where like Werewolf by Night, he's less responsible for his curse than Morbius is. But Morbius was also in a situation that he did not have any control in to begin with. So kind of uh, playing with where lines of responsibility are, as opposed to like, say, Punisher, where there's this kind of implicit agreement that we know he crosses the lines, but we also know he is responsible for everything he does. But you have a character like Morbius, especially with some of the the ways that action is done in this one, where uh, his curse is worsened, for example, where the lines of responsibility lie, where he may or may not be responsible for a specific attack because he's you know lost his ability to reason. He is responsible for putting himself in that situation from his other hubrises, which is why I've always just been a fan of the horror comics on a thematic level. There's also like some just like rioterly quirks, which we will definitely get into that I love about horror that we don't see other places. <laughs> but yeah, like that's kind of why I was always into Morbius's history to begin with. Yeah. The living vampire part has always been something mm-hmm. interesting yeah. and I think can be confusing to someone who's just like, wait, he's... He's not a daywalker. He's, it's different. Yeah, it's, it's different. It's a whole <laughs> different thing. It's a sciencey vampire. Um, and it's a situation that as Danny was mentioning, is kind of he put himself into and he's working through it and trying to figure out what's going on and that that big struggle that's going on there, which I think makes it a really cool twist on all of it and um, still gives you those awesome, brutal vampire moments that we get a lot of in this book and in his history. It's some really cool pathos and little bits and pieces here and there. Danny, you talking about the things and the themes that horror characters allow us to explore is really, really fascinating. And I wanted to hear your personal history with Morbius specifically. If you remember the first time you encountered the character, the first comic that really connected with you and what about Michael Morbius specifically you really liked from the start? 
Oh, boy. I feel like my knowledge of Morbius is so wrapped up in when I first started reading like the Werewolf by Night stuff. I can't say specifically what it was, but it was, you know, kind of in that first big wave of me discovering Werewolf by Night and Moon Knight and all of those characters. So there's two things that appeal to me about Morbius, and they're very connected. Morbius is the dark-sided version of what happened to so many of our favorite science heroes, right? Mm. It is what could have happened to Spidey. And that really interests me because Spidey in particular was always that place of those painfully sympathetic villains, right? Where you're just like, I get why they got to this point and I understand why they made a choice they did. I wish they didn't, you know? It's that constant feeling of, you alongside them wish you could turn back that clock, right? And that's what makes a, like a tragic hero, right? Like that's like Grecian or Roman in it, where where you you spend this whole time seeing where that happens, right? But then I think there's also this interesting thing that happens with Morbius, and I think it happens more so the more modern your interpretation is, right? Because we have a different concept of I don't want to say medical ethics because that sounds like I'm saying that they didn't have medical ethics when <laughs> he was created. And that's not what I mean. I just mean that our conversations are evolving about both like locational colonialism and imperialism, but like the imperialism of the body as well, not to sound like an incredible nerd. But like there's this thing where for him, there's a direct line between desperation and ego. And that's something that Elizabeth in this run points out a lot. And he starts realizing, right, where his desperation wasn't just desperation. He was desperate to fix his body and to make himself healthy, right? But as much as it was about health, it's also to a certain extent about perfection, right? And we see this with him in this, right? That gets turned on its head where he, for a while here, refuses to take treatment that would get him back to manageable and how painful that is to watch, that it's perfection or nothing, and how much that is a dialogue that we're fed as human beings every day. Good horror is like an exaggerated metaphor for like what we go through every day, especially as someone who has talked publicly about like mental health issues, et cetera, and that pressure of either it has to cure and fix everything or what's the point? That is a narrative that you're fed, right? It's not managing is worth it. It helps you get to the next stage, right? And that is one of those things that is tragic about Morbius because you read any Morbius book, even one that isn't as explicit as this one. And you feel that, like that so often what is stopping him is his ego and societal pressure for perfection as opposed to step-by-step -step improvement. And so... It's interesting because in certain ways, Elizabeth is right in this whole narrative. I mean, really, Peter's right. But the thing that makes Elizabeth's story resonate in this is because she pinpoints those confused and angry feelings you have reading older Morbius stories. Those feelings of if you had just stopped for a second and stopped thinking of yourself as this mind above all, then we wouldn't be in this situation. Morbius... It takes a while for him to internalize it. You know, obviously, first he kind of like is like, oh, well, then I'm going to go the other route. Like, instead of perfection, I should just drop everything and give up. But then realizes that like that's not the answer, that that's not viable. And that's something I relate to. You know, I, I relate to that every time I open a script to work on. And so I feel like even if you're not a writer, even 
frankly, even if you're not disabled, like that is something that's very relatable. Yeah. I want to jump into the actual issues because we want to talk a lot about Vita's work on the book, but I also really want to talk about Marcelo's art because I remember I was at, I believe, a Marvel Comics Editorial Summit and they were showing off some of the pages in here and you just see like everybody in the room, their eyes turned to like saucers and they were like, whoa, what is happening? This is some beautiful stuff. Particularly, there's this double page spread a couple of pages into this first issue in which you have Morbius leaping from above to attack someone and blood is is on his face and on his uh, hands, his claws. I think that the first time I saw this, no lie, I rambled at Vita for 10 <laughs> minutes, okay? this Not just that page, but the entire lead up and the way that Vita's script and the art play so well together, mm-hmm. like on like 400 levels. That mm-hmm. Morbius art is absolutely stunning. Yeah. Like the second you see him, the way that Marcelo plays with the literal constant evolution and, and shifting and changing of Morbius is like really like expert level. So unsurprisingly, Vita and I have talked about like Alien and Predator a lot. Mm-hmm. And the fact that like, that's what they did in the beginning of this, right? They gave you the hunt. And there are ways to do the few pages in reveal of your hero. But instead of it being the hero reveal, right, it is finally you run smack into the predator. The mouth of the alien has opened and is breathing on you. And like, that's what we get. We get that classic watching the monsters get picked off one by one. But like, here's the thing. You know that the protagonist of this comic is a scarier monster than any of them, you know? And that's so cool. And that's not even before you get into, I can't believe that Marcelo made the Melter. And we also have to like <laughs> the colors on this too. The Melter looks so good. The Melter looks great. And like the Melter's costume and setup is so corny, like on a deep <laughs> level. And it looks great. He does. Like I don't blink at it. There's almost a level where like Morbius, Melter and Elizabeth all very intentionally, I feel, look like they're from three different comics because they're three different individualized people with such a different perspective on the world around them. Right. And I love the fact that we get these images of them together and Marcelo and Roberto handle it so well, you know, and that's even before you get into every one of Melter's amazing monologues. Yeah. Well, I mean, kudos to Vita and Marcelo and the team for making Melter feel like a threat and feel viable. And ramping him. Yeah. There's a ramp there. Like, you get the feeling of he is almost a gag villain. But Mm. almost not really, because you still have that moment where he's like, eh, whatever, I'll graft their skin back on. Okay, relax, dude. Relax, (laughs) my dude. But then there's this, this ramp. So in issue four, I want to say end of issue four, they do a direct parallel to the very first scene of the Mm -hmm. comic where we get another speech from Melter and he's about to inject his underlings again. But the tone is different now because he's got that humanizing moment of like paralleling him with Morbius. But even then, he immediately pushes past it. He is on a deep level, the exact character that Elizabeth has turned Morbius into in her mind, right? Like, even though in a lot of ways it's incredibly similar to that opening scene, 
But even if you took the dialogue away from the lighting to the way his face moves to the scale, because he has more underlings with him, you know, to like the knowledge of, oh, we now know what this can do now. Mm -hmm. Right. And then like his offhanded kind of like, I improved on it. <laughs> like you're like, oh, right. This dude is a genius. Mm -hmm. Like he is not a joke. And that takes a lot of fancy footwork on the whole team's level. Because a lot of times when you do that transition of amping up the villainry, you usually get a moment where that character gets a whole new costume or like a whole new personality reveal. And that wasn't that. There was a secret, but he's still Melter. Even when he injects himself, he's still Melter. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up Aliens and Predator because a couple pages before that splash that we started talking about is one of my favorite panels in the book. And it's the shadow panel where Morbius slashes the guy in the back and ripping him up from the bottom to the top. That sequence there is just so well paced and plotted and, and it feels so menacing and scary. It's just the pitch perfect horror elements that you look for. It's great. Yeah. And it felt like it earned every page. And with Morbius, it really is like predator prey. It is thinning out the herd and then jumping in. And also, I feel like when there's been a big gap between when you're writing a first issue and the last time a character appeared, there's always a dance between how much do you call back energy-wise to the last callback and how much you make it all new. And I feel like starting with Melter and then jumping from there feels like that's the balance right there, right? Like that's that's your call out, but then you're making it modern is by ramping this guy up instead of like erasing him or arresting him immediately. I love that so much. It's something I appreciate all the time in different comics because – I hesitate to even call it opinion, but like there is the greatest collection of villains anywhere, everywhere in the Marvel Universe. But at the same time, not every book can face off against a Norman Osborn or a Doctor Doom. And some of my favorite stories because of that are like issues of Daredevil where Stiltman is a legitimately terrifying villain. And they also shouldn't, right? <laughs> right, right. Because like you have two problems if every villain is, you know – world ender, right? Mm -hmm. You have both, how is everyone still standing? And also this huge sense of the people forgotten by everyone being bigger, right? Because let's face it, as a modern reader, especially, and I've talked a bit about my background, you know, like growing up in Harlem and the Bronx and heavy exposure to say true crime, for example, and growing up with a lot of celebrity cases, for example, and like big corporation cases. For me, when you only saw people going after the big guys in the big neighborhoods, that never read to me as those were the only baddies, right? What that meant to me was who is watching out for everyone else. That's one of the reasons I think Spider-Man endures. Like, yes, he has Norman. Yes, he has big guys. But a lot of his, even his iconic villains that we think of as big guys are not because of the scale of their crimes. They're because they have become iconic. Mm. He is still dealing with villains that are on the street harassing people. And that's always been 
a thing that I take note of. Yeah. Like, yes, there are always going to be some heroes who, because of their power scale or who they are, I don't have a problem with them fighting, you know, just big bats. I'm a Captain America fan. But in part, those stories work because I know that there are others in the Marvel Universe who are dealing with the smaller villains, you know, mm -hmm. uh, who are helping the smaller scale communities. And so I love any story that not only deals with that, but also remembers that, like, most villains started as a small guy and got bigger mm -hmm. in the Marvel Universe. They amped up what they were doing. Maybe they were evil or morally ambiguous, and then they got massive powers or technology. That it's all about that choice, and you don't just make that choice on a big scale. It's so interesting to hear you talk about this because I remember having really similar conversation with Vita about Punisher. I'm curious, as we continue on in the story and as we get to know a character like Elizabeth in the context of this story, not just in terms of who this character is in Morbius's life, but who this character is in terms of comic book tropes, in terms of what you might expect that character to show yes. up and look like that and be a certain way and how certain elements of that are subverted, certain are not shied away from in the best way. Yeah. But I, I'm curious, as we move forward in this narrative, in your process, as you write, what your scripts look like, and then also what you know Vita's scripts like and what conversations you two have together about, hey, what is your opinion on me making this choice? Hey, can I send you this bit? I of was literally doing that last night. Like, oh, really? does this joke land? <laughs> uh, no, no, it does not, Danny. Okay. I suspected, which is why I need to come to you. So let's fix this. So first off, Vita scripts in very small, illegible handwriting that not even Vita can sometimes understand. And I think that that's very <laughs> important to point out at all given opportunities. <laughs> One of the things that I love about having my best friend as both a co-writer and just someone who's navigating writing and comics careers with me is that we really push each other to be intentional. Vita is very big on being intentional and careful about metaphors, both intentional and unintentional. And I am very much on my high horse all the time about how everything you do in writing is a choice. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't think about it, even if it's automatic, it's automatic because you decided it wasn't worth taking the time to make a thought. I understand the shorthand for it, and I do not begrudge anyone the idea of like, well, the characters didn't want to do this, et cetera. I do understand what people are saying, but for me, that never really works because for me, it feels like giving up responsibility. Mm. Again, I don't think that's what most other writers are doing, but I, it's very important when Vita and I talk about being intentional. And I say this because one of the things that often comes up is that if we stumble upon a stereotype of a character or we see a character that could be, we both to ourselves in our heads and then together oftentimes have long conversations about whether it's worth touching this, whether it's worth subverting it, how can we push it so that it's not that anymore. Yeah. Sometimes it's by leaning in and like fleshing that out. Sometimes it's by totally subverting it and kind of throwing that to the wind. And Elizabeth does several of these things kind of very interestingly, right? Because 
as much as she is angry and hurt, her internal monologue is still very sweet and soft in a lot of ways. Often when you get that hardened character, hardened by trauma and pain, she says, you know, Elizabeth died. That person doesn't exist anymore. But there's no way that's true when you hear her internal monologue, where you hear it and the flashbacks work because you know that's still how she feels about those moments. So there's a decision very expertly done of, in the same way that with Morbius, what she wants to be and who she sees herself as is divorced from the reality of her trauma in a lot of ways, which I find really interesting and relatable. One of my favorite parts about this is Evita has Elizabeth rail on about how you killed Michael. But then it evolves. You would expect then the end of the story to be, oh, she finds out that this is Michael and, oh, that changes everything. But that's not what the dialogue is. The dialogue is, with your own hubris, you killed the version of you that was a good man and that I loved. And that's reflected in how she talks about herself as Elizabeth being dead, right? She is aware this entire time that Morbius is the person that she grew up with to a certain level, right? But for her, for all intents and purposes, his pride and his desperation and the fact that he has left a trail of pain after him has killed the Michael that she knew. And she stands by that until she sees the parts of him that still exist. And then it becomes more complicated. I also like that it doesn't end on like her being sure, because this is a series of traumas upon traumas. It is never getting over mourning someone who is implied to be like one of the loves of her life, whether romantic or otherwise, right? It's never getting over that and then being forced to reevaluate if there's still a shred of him in there. Like, what does that mean? What does that mean for everything she's become? But it also doesn't treat her like crap for being traumatized and hurt. I think that that's something that, especially if you look at the older, obviously 90s comics, that like her character is kind of like deeply inspired by both in look and kind of like tropes, especially when you're dealing with like the blonde huntress, right? That it is very easy for some older, lesser stories to tell her that she should just be over it, that she is outrageous for her pain. But no one says that to her. Spidey's like, we need to stop fighting because this is like complicated. But he gets it. She is never forced to be in a room of characters that we, the reader, empathize with, that we want to see survive and told that her pain is invalid, which is a really big deal for me. You know, some of that is done by having put Melter into play, right? She doesn't have to be the final villain because we have Melter. But also this didn't have to end in a team up. There are so many versions of that wronged person who knew the monster before that don't end with a conversation. And I think that that comes out of Vita being a writer that acknowledges the complexities of trauma and self-identity and building yourself up based on limited sections of knowledge. I want to shift gears a little bit because you mentioned Spidey. For you as a writer and for, you know, thinking about being Vita's best friend and, and having seen this opportunity to write Spider-Man. What does that mean 
for both of you, for you. Like, to me, I, I imagine like getting the chance to write Spider-Man as someone who has grown up reading these stories and enjoying these characters. That's got to be just like super fun, like almost like Christmas. It's so much fun. You know, like one of the things I love about Vita in particular, in case you can't tell, I'm incredibly wordy. And Vita is really good at that kind of like snappy pace dialogue in comics that like I pour over agonizingly to try to get right. Peter was always on on that list for me of I want to see Vita do that. So that was really, really cool for me. The second I found that out, I was like, you're just going to nail it, you know? And I think that it's really funny as friends. We spend a lot of time on the phone with each other, assuring each other that like, not only is this real, but like, yo, you know, you've got this. I've spent nearly a decade Mm. hearing you talk about not just any particular character, but themes and dialogue and craft. And it's funny now, because as we've recorded this, you know, Vita's obviously gotten to write uh, Miles, and we have officially announced that I'm like doing Champions, which means I will get to write Miles, and hopefully I'm half as funny as Vita. But, you know, like, it's so surreal. There is no part of what we're doing right now that doesn't feel so cool, (laughs) you know, like, (laughs) on just a nerd level. And there are some things where you're like, oh, this will be so cool to do. But either like the character is like so big that you're like, there's no way I'll ever be able to touch them. Or you're like, oh, but is anyone going to actually listen when I'm like, let me write this. And somehow Morbius got to like, is I'm like, you did both. Good job, Scout. You did both. (laughs) Where you've got like Peter and you've got Morbius. And the more you think about it, the more it's a natural fit, right? The science thing, the... Oh, what was that? That great line. My favorite line. We can catch up while we science, Um, which the first time I read that uh, I cackled for a while and kept bringing it up, I think, all day. Sorry about that, Davida. (laughs) It's always surreal. And to me, it's almost because I'm a giant nerd for my friends. Being able to be like my best friend did that is just as cool, if not more cool than being like, I get to write this thing because I don't have to have the anxiety and fear of getting it right. I can just be like, my best friend is definitely going to get it right because they are awesome. And I'm always right. They land it and it rocks. That's how I feel about all of this. We get to write dream stuff. And even when we stress out about scripts or deadlines, I'm still getting to read like a 2020 like equivalent to like, 1970s horror comics and Vita. I just want because we haven't gotten to it yet. Vita proving that like the horror narrative captions still work and still apply, and uh, you just have to execute them well. I just have to say that because that was my favorite part of reading this. Was like there's a lot of modern interpretations of this character in this book that don't go back to that classic tone, and like Vita not only did, but like by using their you know philosophy background and and their knowledge of like the ethics of science philosophy and all of that stuff to make that voice that just like is a Morbius book, you know? We got to wrap up on talking about Morbius. Uh, I do want to point out, I just love sort of like touching on some of the things you were talking about, Danny. I love the final panel of the book, which is the shadow of Morbius with the giant moon in the background and the like, classic feeling, but moving forward inner 
monologue that Morbius is thinking of, like, the drive is still there to search and discover, to improve. I only fear that my need for a solution will not overcome my reason. I only wish to be a man. And for that, I must remember to not let myself become a monster. It feels so, like, just perfect and classic. And, like, there's just some great, like, song. I, I just imagine some <laughs> song, like, rising up at that moment. I mean, I love the happy ending like with the question mark being intentional i am a sucker be it in comics and prose for that ending that is you've solved it you've moved forward as a character that doesn't mean everything's solved like he has hit a huge understanding of himself as both man and monster but that's clearly not the end of his story. And that was a thing that I've always loved about comics, about superhero comics and ongoing worlds where different writers come in, that sense of ending a story, but not ending the character journey. And I love an arc that focuses not on solving every problem for a character, but moving them forward so that they can discover the other problems that we all have to deal with in therapy. And I think that that left Morbius really open both to exploring that and making whole new mistakes, which we all love. Yeah. So that is Morbius. Everybody can check it out on Marvel Unlimited. The collection is out there. Before we let you go, Danny, we do want to make sure everybody knows uh, we talked about it a little bit. You're writing Champions. Yeah. yeah. Heck yeah. So wild. And uh, with uh, Luciano actually on art with me, which is such a gift. Every time I get an email from Luciano or a DM, I'm like, my day is made so much better by his existence. Uh, my arc is called Killer App. It is exactly like it sounds. Uh, it involves teens, social media, and somehow superheroing evolves from that. <laughs> Maybe. Kamala has had enough. That's what I'll say. <laughs> Fair. Uh, speaking of Kamala, who's on your squad for champions? So I really enjoy like that classic kind of core crew that's been there for a while. So we've got Kamala, we've got Viv, we've got Riri, Miles, and we've got Sam. And I loved what happened in Outlaws. And I felt like there's so much to play with, both in terms of the world and where all of these guys are, that I didn't really want to mix up the team too much because I feel like as a reader, I wouldn't want to sit there and be like, but you left this on the table. I feel like they have so much space to grow as people and teammates and superheroes at the point that Eve left them at the end of Outlawed. So I'm very hyped to kind of play with that and what that means for them. We are super, super hyped to read it as well. And then Vita will come back and talk oh, about- God, I your champions. <laughs> I totally forgot that revenge is a, is a possibility here. Oh, I like that. Oh, um, love that. So excited. Oh, gosh. Vita's <laughs> going to get me back. We look forward to it. Champions number six in comic shops and the Marvel app in April. Danny, Lore, thank you for being on the show. Thank you, guys. This was so, so much, much fun, Danny. as always. Hope you enjoyed it, Vita. <laughs> <laughs> Don't kill me. <laughs> Thank you again to Danny. Just two best friends, Danny, talking about Vita's work. It warmed my cold heart. It was so much fun to dig into all of that with Danny and a great story to read as well. I think it's also cool that we've had Danny on the show now twice and it's before Danny has really popped off. 
Now we're seeing Danny on a lot more books and stories. We talked about them this week, and I think we're going to see their name and their work more and more often. And you can always come back to Marvel's pull list and be like, I remember them talking about Danny way back when. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was hip to it. I was I was on the Danny Lore train well before the rest of y'all. Yeah. So, yeah. That's why you listen to Marvel's pull list to know what's happening before it happens. All right. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marquez, Jorge Estrada, with help from Megan Bagala. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And Brad Barton is Marvel's Pull List audio development manager. He is a living vampire. That's it. That's There's no joke there. He's a living vampire. <laughs> All right. I'm Ryan. <laughs> and I'm Tucker. This is Marvel. Your universe. <laughs>